we here at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed want to share a stress warning with you. Our cases and stories involve mental illness, sexual assault, suicide, gun violence, and emotional trauma. Please listen with care. If you or someone you know is suffering in the U.S., please reach out to 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hey! Hey everyone, Mel and Beck here. We just wanted to drop in and remind you to follow us on our social medias. So our Instagram and our Facebook are Rocky Mountain Red Handed, and our Twitter is RMRH Podcast. Yeah, so go and check out our social medias. We always post great pics that have to do with our uh, cases, case notes, anything that we find interesting, we share with you guys. Also, Mel, what's that email address? Our email is RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. Yeah, send us in your case recommendations. We want to know about local cases in your community and how they have affected your towns. So hit us up. Let us know of of the cases you want to hear in the Rocky Mountains. The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Melanie, here with my dear friend, Becky. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. Let's dive in to Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Hey, Becky. How are you today? I'm doing great, Melanie. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah, things are going good. Anything new with you? Not really, but I am dying to hear the story of Winnie Ruth Judd. We'll just jump right into it then today. I'm going to say welcome back to everyone because we are on part two of The Trunk Murderess. If you haven't listened to part one, you will want to go back and do that. So go back, listen there, and then come back and listen to this one. Yeah, so... Where we're at in the story is the dismembered body found in the trunks were later identified as Sammy Samuelson. She had three bullet holes in her body. Anne's body was stuffed intact into the second black shipping trunk, surrounded by clothing, paper, letters, and other odds and ends. Now, where was Winnie Ruth Judd? On Monday, October 19th, 1931... After being contacted by the LAPD, the Phoenix Police Department started the investigation by searching the bungalow. However, they did not collect any evidence or samples from the crime scene. The only thing that was really out of order was missing was the mattresses out of the house. Sammy and Ann's mattresses were not in the home. Later, one mattress was found about a mile away in an empty field. Um, but there was no blood stains, nothing unusual found on the mattresses. The other mattress has never been found. Interesting. I wonder why she would have taken it out if there was no evidence on it. Well, and she doesn't have a car. How did she move it? How did she move it, right? The following day, the owner of the bungalow saw a way to make a small fortune. The news of the slings was all over Phoenix, and the public was very curious about this. Yeah, the police had not taken custody of the home and hadn't done any more searches to it, so the owner placed advertisements in the two largest newspapers in Maricopa County, the Arizona Republic and the Phoenix Evening Gazette. The advertisement said, To accommodate those who wish to go through, I have employed Mr. Bond to go into details with you. A charge of 10 cents each will be made. Place closed Saturday. This is absolutely insane. 
I mean, way to be an entrepreneur, yeah, right? I guess, you know, if you can make a buck. But but li- very sad. A very sad way well, to do that. Literally thousands and thousands of people toured the home before the police collected a shred of evidence. Oh, so sad. Imagine thousands of footprints and handprints compromising any possible evidence that may have been left behind. At this point, the whole crime scene is just contaminated. Completely contaminated. After the tours of the home were stopped by the police, finally they, like, figured out, maybe we should lock that down. They seized the house and collected the severely tainted and manipulated evidence. Blood and bone samples were taken, and the layout of the crime scene was detailed and added to the case files. This bungalow actually still stands today. Um, Becky recently visited the Phoenix area and went downtown to see the home. We will post the pictures that she took on our socials, so go check those out. Of course, when Becky was on vacation, she had to go <laughs> see a crime house. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it was a really it was it's a really amazing experience because it is in downtown Phoenix as you can imagine because the city's grown so much and it is it looks exactly exactly like the pictures everything is the same except for now it is surrounded and completely shadowed by towering office buildings around i bet you the buildings around it were between eight and 15 stories um but the house was actually in really good order there were you know the trees and um the landscaping was nice it seemed it seemed really nice taken care of the highlight was definitely um a local artist. Her name is um, Rania Anu, I believe is how you say it. We'll go ahead and tag her in our post, but she has has painted on the house, actually in a window, um, a beautiful, beautiful painting of Sammy and, and Ruth. And it's really beautiful. And, and in fact, I think I took a picture of it and we posted it, right, Melanie? Yes, that mm-hmm. will be posted. Yeah. Definitely. So is this home still being used as a home or it just stands with the art on the outside? Someone no, no, lived someone, there. someone lived there. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's crazy. So, uh, again, go check out our social medias. We have tagged that artist so you can check her out. She has some amazing work. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that the community has just kind of accepted this story. It's part of their history. Um, so the house is still there and they're not trying to cover it up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, let's catch back up with Ruth's brother, poor Burton McKinnell. He is completely clueless to what's going on. The poor guy was completely oblivious to anything strange going on. He thought his sister was just literally coming for like a lovely visit. Ruth had acted very nervous on their drive into LA, but refused to share anything with her brother. The siblings had always been extremely close. So I'm sure this seemed very strange to Burton Mm -hmm. that she wasn't opening up. I'm sure knowing what we know, I'm sure... Ruth was almost trying to protect him from the situation. So Ruth asked him to drop her off somewhere in downtown Los Angeles. He simply like pulled the car over. Ruth jumped out and she disappeared into the crowds on the busy city sidewalks. In the meantime, the LAPD discovered the contents of the trunks. They immediately reached out to Dr. William Judd, Ruth's husband and Burton, her brother. Both men were completely shocked at discovering the contents of Ruth's bags. It was cute. They actually always called her Ruthie. So they couldn't believe that Ruthie had gotten herself in this mess. While questioned, it became obvious that the men had nothing to do with the murders and were not covering for Ruth in any way. They each had strong alibis and they were completely in shock. After days of hiding out in a downtown L.A. funeral home on October 23rd, 1931, Ruth finally surrendered. She was tired, hungry, and simply stated, quote, I had to do it. I had to. 
as she was taken into custody. Ruth, at only 26 years old, was charged with first-degree murder by the state of Arizona. She was expedited back to Phoenix. The Phoenix Police Department showed no mercy with questioning Ruth. They hammered her for hours and hours, and when she was able to give a response, the detectives seemed not to accept those answers. The detectives did not want to hear anything about any type of accomplices or any help Ruth may have received, but they seemed dead set on pinning the entire crime and cover-up on Ruth. It was obvious when viewing the medical examiner's statement and autopsy photos that the dismemberment was performed by a professional. So... Not to get too gory, if you want to skip ahead a few seconds, you can, but each cut was performed with a sure hand and in the correct location for the cleanest dismemberment. Mm -hmm. This dismemberment was not done by an inexperienced person in a panic. Yet the autopsy reports of Sammy's dismemberment body was closely hidden from the press. Before any trial or conviction, the newspaper and public were ready to hang Winnie Ruth Judd, the trunk murderess. When Ruth told her story to the detectives, she shared the details of the argument at the bungalow that fateful night, the story of Jack Halloran and his love affairs, Sammy coming at her with a gun, a shot through her hand, the frantic fight over the gun, and hitting Ruth over the head with the ironing board, and the butter knife being used as an unintentional weapon. Calling Ruth a liar, the police did not believe one single word that came out of Ruth's mouth. They believed that Ruth's bullet wound was self-inflicted. They told Ruth that no one saw her with a bandaged hand after the killings, when in fact police had talked to five different people who had claimed to see Ruth with a bandaged hand on Saturday. Melanie, I smell a cover-up. How about you? Yeah, it kind of seems to be that way. Two co-workers and two patients at the clinic reported Ruth with a bandaged hand on Saturday, the day after the killings. Also, the street trolley driver claimed Ruth's hand was bandaged on the night of the death of Sammy and Anne. Yeah, that's right. Remember, she took the trolley home on her way home to grab her pocketbook right after the murder. That's before she even saw Jack Halloran. The police were sticking to the narrative that they had created. Ruth had killed her friends in their sleep while they lay in their beds. They believed Ruth shot and killed them. Then Ruth butchered the bodies herself with no outside help. Lastly, police believe that on Saturday night, as she was planning her escape from Phoenix, she pulled out the 25 caliber gun and shot herself through the hand. After she was arrested, Ruth received emergency care to remove the bullet out of her infected hand. This has to be, what, like three, four days? I'm sorry, I don't have the exact number, but that bullet has been in her hand quite a while. That has to be so painful. Mm -hmm. The doctor reported seeing numerous bruises and welts. 147 to be exact all over Ruth's body all of this supports Ruth's story that she had told the police the doctor included in the statement Mrs. Judd put up a tremendous fight for her life in the medical report this report mysteriously disappeared from the investigation report and was not used in the trial so here's our thoughts let's just take a break because we have so many so much information coming at us did she act alone? What do you think, Mel? Do you believe Ruth? I I believe Ruth, but I just don't know why Jack was so set on helping her. That's kind of what makes it confusing for me. And were the are the police just on Jack's side and they're trying to cover him, cover up for him because he's wealthy and he, he is a powerful man in Phoenix at the time. Yeah. I just I don't understand how a 100-pound woman could do this alone. 
cut up the bodies and to be able to do it so precisely. She, well, has, she has no experience in that. I, I feel like we've talked about this before, but moving a body of someone who is not alive is very, very, very hard. It is not like picking up a heavy box or moving a piece of furniture. You know, bodies are floppy. It's very, very hard to move a body that that is deceased. Yeah, definitely. So I keep going back to the mattresses, too. If she killed them in in their sleep, why one mattress is gone, but another mattress is a mile away. She has no transportation and there's no blood on the mattress. Yeah, if they were sleeping, it would be interesting. Although they could have both been in the same bed and maybe that's the one we haven't found. And that one has the blood. So you're absolutely right. It's hard to know for sure. Yeah. And then even just... Is Ruth vicious enough? I mean, to commit murder is one thing, but then to dismember a body is a whole nother can of worms. During the investigation, Jack Halloran's name did come out somewhat. It's important to note that nationwide Jack's full name as Ruth's boyfriend and possible accomplice was printed in the newspapers, except in Phoenix. His name was not stated in the papers at all, Mal. The Arizona papers simply refer to him as Mr. X. Which is not something that would happen today because we have the internet and all of those things and you'd be able Mm -hmm. to see it no matter what. But back then, you just got the newspapers that you had. Yeah, FOIA, there's so many like Freedom of Information Act. There's nothing that you could hide nowadays. Definitely. During the investigation, neighbors had seen Jack Halloran's car and identified the car with the correct plates. Several people saw the car in front of the bungalow on Friday and Saturday, which was the weekend of the slings. This information was reported in newspapers across the country, but was not included in the Arizona papers. This information, not surprisingly, did not make it into the investigation files either. So we've got some shiftiness going on, don't you think? Definitely. So just three months later, the state was ready to prosecute Ruth with the murders of Agnes and Leroy. The state planned to charge Ruth with the murder of Sammy Samuelson after the trial for Anne. Um, Spoiler alert, the second trial actually never happened. Um, And with that, we will pause for a quick sponsor break. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my balance of nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my balance of nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's balance of nature, promo code REDHANDED. Thank you so much to our sponsors. So let's get back to it. The jury selection was just starting for the murder one trial of Winnie Ruth Judd. Lines of people were waiting to get inside of Maricopa County Courthouse um, on the morning of January 19, 1932, presided by Judge Howard C. Spearman heading up the trial. Jury selection was tedious for both sides because of the high profile nature of the case. Everyone had been reading about this in the headlines. The nicknames given to Ruth in the newspapers were brutal. Tiger Woman, Blonde Butcher, which is inaccurate since she was actually had light brunette hair. But Blonde Butcher sounds better. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. And the most popular, the Trunk Murderess. That nickname has stuck around, yeah. Every major paper in the U.S. was leading with any sliver of a story about Winnie Ruth Judd, giving Ruth just the same amount of coverage as even Al Capone. 
A rumor was floating around and later proved to be that Mr. William Randolph Hearst paid in full for Ruth's defense team. Yeah, Hearst was a newspaper tycoon. In fact, he owned and controlled about 40% of the newspapers in America at the time. He knew that the trunk murderess was selling a lot of newspapers for him. Mel, have you seen Citizen Kane? I have not seen Citizen Kane, but you're going to talk about the movie that I have seen, which is one of my favorites, Mm -hmm. Newsies. Yeah. Yeah, so Citizen Kane is known as the best film of all time. It's just perfection. It, the Citizen Kane is based on Hearst. And if you've seen Newsies like Melanie, yep, you know who um, Hearst is. He's the uh, the bad guy in the film. He's the one that wouldn't settle with the newsboys. So Hearst is, is a very, he's a powerful man in, in the United States at that time. He's known in pop culture now, but um, he was very, very powerful at the time of the trial. The trial for Anne's murder lasted three weeks. Lloyd Andrews, a very popular and well-respected lawyer, was the lead prosecutor. Ruth had three attorneys to represent her, led by Paul Shenick. Her lawyers chose to base the entire defense on the plea of insanity, not self-defense. Which mm-hmm. I feel like that's an interesting way to go. Yeah, well, Hearst actually brought in her three attorneys from California. They were not locals, so they had a definitely a different way to go about um, the trial rather than what was normal for Arizona at the time. Interesting. Yeah. Ruth did not testify, and people say that she actually sat, they use the word pitifully. She sat pitifully at the defense table, wringing her hands and wrapping and unwrapping her bandaged hand. Scott Thompson, the jury foreman, years later stated that the evidence presented by the defense was hard to understand. It was told to the jury in a confusing way and in an illogical order. He also said that the defense seemed ill-prepared and not sure of the case details. Yeah, Jack Halloran's name was brought up repeatedly during the trial. He was sworn in as a witness, but get this, Mel, he was never called by either the prosecution or the defense. Interesting. Mm. The prosecution stuck with the investigators' early theory. They claimed that Ruth had killed the two women while they were in their bed sleeping. Now, we know that not that's not true because of the mattresses, which we've already talked about. But, I mean, I guess they're just sticking to their story. Yeah. And there was hardly any blood evidence in the bedroom. Again, the house was not contained right away. Mm-hmm. So we don't know for sure how much of that was contaminated. Mm-hmm. But Ruth did say there was a little bit of blood splatter. Um, that small spray from when Jack dropped the body on the mattress. So, but yeah, you would think that there would be more evidence. I agree. Mm-hmm. It's also too important to note, and this is just insane to me, that the dismemberment was not brought up in trial at all. Which, like I said earlier, I feel like murder and dismemberment are two completely different, like, levels of of evil, I guess I should say. Yeah. Um, I don't know why they were not brought up. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Ruth did not testify in her own defense, which is very common. Um, insiders have said that Ruth was expecting an individual to come forward to help clear her name, but that never happened. Any ideas? I mean, all she said was quote unquote individual. Do you have any guesses on who that individual would be? I I don't know. I mean, the only person it seems like would be Jack. Maybe mm-hmm. she was hoping that he would come forward and tell what she's saying is the truth. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that Jack is not the knight in shining armor that Ruth thinks he is. Yeah. So again, yeah, Ruth's team was all from California, like we mentioned earlier. 
and they went with the insanity defense. Now, at this time, the, that defense was used quite a lot in the state of California. Ruth, for the most part, kept her mouth shut and just sat in the courtroom waiting to hear the verdict. So this is interesting. In 1932, there were no discovery laws. This means that the prosecution and the defense didn't have to share evidence with the opposing side. Each side held their own investigations completely separate. Um, knowing this detail, I wonder how the trial would have played out differently if they had had those laws or if it had happened nowadays. Mm-hmm. Well, if it happened nowadays, we'd have a ring doorbell cam of them going in and out of the bungalow. And that's very true. <laughs> we'd have way more evidence. Yeah. Ruth did have the support of her family during her trial, which I think is so great. Her family just stuck right by her. Her parents, Reverend H.J. and Carrie McKinnell, relocated from the Midwest to be close to Ruth during the trial. Her biggest supporter was her brother, Burton. He was the one who met her at the train station and was unaware of the crime at that time. Burton moved to Phoenix and worked around the clock to support Ruth in any way he could. He gave interviews, talked to people on the street, and wrote to newspapers to defend his sister. Her family had always been so important to her, and this was this time was no different. They were by her side through the entire trial. Well, the Arizona jury did not buy the insanity defense one bit. The jury reached their verdict midday on February 8th, 1932. Ruth was pronounced guilty of premeditated murder of Agnes and Leroy and to be hanged by the neck. Ruth was sentenced to die on February 17th, 1933, which that is fast. I mean, people sit on death row for decades now, and we're talking like a little a over a year. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. crazy. After her conviction, a local Phoenix attorney, Herman Likowitz, went to the courthouse and requested a new trial for Ruth. He claimed she had not been defended properly, which I would agree with, it sounds like. The Maricopa County Sheriff John McFadden agreed. Sheriff John McFadden was an ethical man of integrity and a searcher for the truth. He believed there was much more to the story than the police had laid out. John McFadden's my favorite. I think he's like the hero of the story. Um, He saw the autopsy photos and he knew that Ruth did not perform the dismemberment. After much pleading, Ruth opened up to McFadden and shared the story of her life from the past year. She shared the details of her friendships, her lovers, and the horrible argument and deaths at the bungalow. She shared the aftermath with Jack Halloran and how scared she was for her life. Sherrick McFadden hung on every word and was determined to let the truth be told. He and his wife actually spent a lot of time listening and visiting with Ruth during her stay at the prison. Sheriff McFadden received death threats and phone calls while investigating Ruth's trial. The callers threatened him, his wife, and their children. Bravely, the couple together agreed that the truth must be told and carried on fighting for Ruth despite threats of their lives for their children and everything. I think that is amazing. A new investigation began led by Sheriff McFadden. He had a plan. He wanted to bring a transcript of Ruth's full story to the grand jury to force their hand and essentially get a new hearing. He gathered together several prominent people into a meeting. On December 18, 1932, the following people sat around a table and listened to Ruth tell her story. Sheriff John McFadden, the Maricopa County Sheriff. Winnie Ruth Judd, our so-called trunk murderess. Oliver Wilson, Ruth's new attorney. William Delbridge, the Arizona State Prison Warden. Jeff Adams, Sheriff McFadden's deputy. And a court stenographer. 
to listen and record every word. So before we talk about this important roundtable meeting, let's take a quick sponsor break, shall we, Mel? Let's do it. Rocky Mountain Red Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my balance of nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my balance of nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's balance of nature, promo code REDHANDED. Thank you so much to our sponsors. So we have a group of very important people gathered to hear Ruth's story. Sheriff McFadden's plan worked. The grand jury read and listened to the transcript and the truth came out. One of the grand jurors later stated, We didn't believe it was a cold-blooded murder. We felt positive that she was unable to cut up the body. We were told it took a professional. Most people in the valley knew other people were involved in this crime, but there was nothing they could do. The others involved were prominent married men. That is a powerful statement. But it is interesting because he said, we felt positive she was unable to cut up the body, but that wasn't brought up in trial Mm -hmm. as a defense. Mm -hmm. The grand jury requested that the parole board commute her death sentence to life in prison, which they refused. They decided to hold off until after the death settled on the whole fiasco. Ruth would have to wait to see if her life would be spared. The grand jury also stated that she committed manslaughter, not premeditated murder. And most importantly, the grand jury indicted Mr. Jack Halloran, Happy Jack, as he likes to be called. Sheriff McFadden volunteered to deliver the news personally to Jack himself. In January of 1933, Jack Halloran made his way to the Maricopa County Courthouse for his own trial. Ruth was finally able to take the stand and share her full story. After all the time she waited to talk, she ended up being an absolute terrible witness, Mel. In a testimony that lasted three days, she screamed, she shouted, she bawled her eyes out, she spoke incoherently, her thoughts were filled with fragmented details, she was completely hysterical. Yeah, she was quoted saying things like she was going to be hanged for something that Jack Halloran was responsible for. She's convicted of murder, but she shot in self-defense. I mean, just ramblings. Um, She said that Jack Halloran removed every bit of evidence and that he was responsible for what she was going through. She said that anything that she is guilty of, Jack Halloran is guilty of. Well, Jack Halloran's attorney agreed with Ruth, unfortunately. They used her testimony against her and to Jack's advantage. The defense team stated that Jack could not be guilty of accessory to murder because there was no murder, just as Ruth proclaimed. And the defense worked. On January 24, 1933, Jack Halloran walked out of the courthouse as a free man, and Ruth, well, she went back to death row. Well, the Arizona State Prison had a new warden, A.G. Walker, and he had an opinion on his most famous prisoner, Winnie Ruth Judd. Warden Walker asked for an insanity hearing for Ruth. An insanity ruling would mean a lifetime in the state mental hospital instead of death row. And I think this may be my favorite quote of the whole series here. But um, A.G. Walker was quoted saying, It's much better than watching a woman be hanged. I'm sure. (laughs) 
The state agreed, and on April 14th, the day she was scheduled to hang, Ruth was center stage at her insanity hearing. It was a 10-day hearing full of theatrics and was quite entertaining, as people reported. Ruth was said to be laughing erratically and slapping the table throughout the hearing. She leaned over and said to her husband, let me throw myself out that window. She yelled about the men who had blocked the truth from being public at her original trial. They are all gangsters, she proclaimed. Her mother testified that insanity ran through her family like a wild river. Her father spoke of people throughout his family that were loonies. On April 24, 1933, Ruth returned to Phoenix and to her new home, the Arizona State Asylum for the Insane. So I'm, we don't know, but I would think that her parents were just trying to get her off of death row. Don't you think? I definitely agree. And we said the word loonies because that is the word he used, not because that's what we believe. Absolutely. Yeah. So 24th and Van Buren, that's what all the locals called it. They may have felt uneasy about saying Arizona State Asylum for the insane. The hospital was understaffed, hot, and dingy, but much better than death row. Ruth made the best of her situation, though. Ruth was the most popular resident, and everyone loved her at the state asylum. She was a young, healthy woman in an underfunded mental institution. So over the years, she became actually more like a member of the staff rather than a patient. Interesting. She assisted the staff helped other patients, and even opened a beauty parlor in the hospital. She grew so popular and skilled at hair, the women in town would go to the state hospital to have their hair done by Winnie Ruth Judd, the trunk murderess. It's so interesting how things used to be back then. Yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? So we've got another big twist and turn in our story here. Ruth spent the next 30 years um, here at the mental institution, 1933 to 1971, But she did manage to have a few precious days away. Winnie Ruth Judd escaped seven different times. The officials never could figure out how she kept getting out so easily. It was a highly secure facility for the time. Years later, it was discovered that Ruth had a key to the main door in and out of the building. Isn't this great? I just love it. A kind nurse had given a key to her because of the injustice Ruth had experienced in her life. So a little side note, as a Christmas present to author Jana Bomersbach, who wrote an amazing book about the case, Ruth gave her this big brass colored key, the very key that Ruth had used to escape. In all caps letters, the key says, Arizona State Hospital, do not duplicate, 634. So I've got to do a shout out really quick for Jenna Bomersbach. If you are interested in this case, go read her book. It is like, it's crazier than, it seems like it's made up because it just has so many twists and turns. You will love this book. I really, really enjoy it. Every time she escaped, the Arizona Republic would run a big front page banner headline saying, Winnie Ruth Judd escapes again. Citizens would lock their doors and stay inside. The school children were terrified that Ruth would come and get them in the night. Winnie Ruth Judd had evolved into more of a myth than a real person to the citizens of Phoenix in those decades. During Ruth's stay at 24th and Van Buren, Dr. Brown, Jack's doctor friend who could have possibly assisted with the cover-up, came to visit Ruth. He was drunk and slurring his words as he talked to the front desk attendant of the hospital. When asked why he wanted to see Mrs. Judd, Dr. Brown proclaimed, quote, 
because I'm the only man alive who knows the truth. After making this statement, he stumbled out the front door and left the prison, never to return. Unfortunately, he died a few days later. Some sources say he died of a coronary and others say it was suicide. Talk about a twist in the case. Crazy. Like, knowing that the dismemberment was so so perfectly done. I mean, those cuts were in the right place. It was neat. It was tidy. I, I think that it had to have been Dr. Brown. Don't you think? It would make it would mm-hmm. make the most sense, it sounds like. So between 1939 and 1962, Ruth escaped seven times. October 24th, 1939, she left for six days and returned to the asylum on her own with no police. December 3rd, 1939, she left for several days and took a bus to Yuma, Arizona, where police found her. She received a 24-month sentence in solitary confinement for this escape. That's That's a long time in solitary. Mm -hmm. May 11th, 1947, she left the asylum and enjoyed 12 hours of freedom and sunshine. The police found her on the grounds of a nearby resort in Phoenix. Uh, November 29th, 1951, Ruth slipped away for a few hours and was found not far from the asylum. February 2nd, 1952, she was gone for five days, eventually turning herself into police. And on November 23rd, 1952, after enjoying Thanksgiving dinner at the asylum, Ruth escaped for two days and stayed with a friend until police located her. October 8th, 1962, Ruth escaped and stayed away for quite a long time, six and a half years. With the financial help of her brother, Ruth traveled to Oakland, California, under the name Marion Lane. She applied at a local agency for a job because she did not want to depend on her brother to continue to finance her daily life. Ruth was hired by a wealthy family, the Nichols family, and worked as a maid and a caretaker to the aging matriarch of the family, lovingly named Mother Nichols. Ruth lived in a huge mansion overlooking the San Francisco Bay, Mother Nichols loved and cared for Ruth. She said Ruth, or Marion as she was going by, was an ideal companion and took wonderful care of her. The two ladies became close friends. Ruth tended to the house, cooked, and even helped host beautiful parties. Sadly, Mother Nichols died in December of 1967, and Ruth was just brokenhearted over the loss of her friend. The Nichols family invited Ruth to come and stay at another residence they owned north of San Francisco, and Ruth agreed. In June 1968, police found her through a driving record, and they brought her into custody again. The Nichols family was shocked. So, back at the asylum, after her long intermission from her stay at the hospital, Ruth had enough. She demanded a sanity hearing. In October 1969, her attorney brought a case for the hearing that summarized her so-called crimes and innocence, her time and service in the asylum, her life experiences during her escapes, and her good character. She had the ability to live independently, and she wanted her freedom. The public, after years of fearing Ruth, had finally warmed to her as part of their community. The public was outraged by the denial, and Ruth again demanded another hearing. With the public's support in February 1971, in front of the same board, she was finally granted freedom. After almost 40 years of prison and the asylum, on December 21st, 1971, the governor of Arizona commuted her sentence and she finally walked out of the asylum as a free woman. Ruth was paroled in 1971 and moved to California for a quiet life under the name of Marion Lane. 
She lived in Stockton, California with her dog, Skeeter. She eventually moved back to Phoenix and passed away on October 23rd, 1998. At the age of 93, she long outlived the people who associated with the trial. It's kind of ironic that she, Winnie Ruth Judd, the trunk murderess, ended up outlasting them all. Let's not forget the victims who lost their lives, whether it was murder or self-defense. Anne Leroy was just 32, and Sammy Samuelson was 24 at the time of their deaths. To this day, the Penal County Historical Society and Maricopa County Court Record Office have boxes and boxes of files, reports, witness reports, pieces of evidence, including the actual bullets that killed Anne and Sammy. They have the interviews of the potential witnesses who were ignored by the police so that their narrative would work for the prosecution. Everything has been preserved over the decades, all of the thousands of original pages saved. So yet, here we are, 90 plus years later from the date of the horrific crime, and we still really don't know what happened for sure. How guilty was she? Is it possible that she acted alone? Was she ever insane? I honestly do not think that she was actually insane. I think that her family pled that to get her off of death row. Um, I don't see how she would have possibly done it alone. I don't think that there's a physical possibility of of how she could have done that alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Jack and the doctor had to have both been involved. Mm -hmm. But we'd love to know what your guys' thoughts are too. So we'll have our post on Instagram and we'd love to hear if you guys have any thoughts about the case. I think the hero of this entire story is Sheriff McFadden. I think without him, Ruth would have hung. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. I agree. So I hope you enjoyed the story of Winnie Ruth Judd, the trunk murderess of Arizona. Yeah, definitely. And until next time, keep, keep your, your hands, hands clean. clean. Hey, thanks for listening. Thank you for supporting Rocky Mountain Red Handed. And please go follow us on our social medias. Um, We'd love to hear your comments and we want you to see all the pictures and the sources that we've posted. Our Instagram and our Facebook, again, are Rocky Mountain Red Handed. And our Twitter is RMRH Podcast. And don't forget to email us. Yes. What's that email? Our email is RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. Send us your case recommendations from your local community. Have a great day.